Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Is that in the Bible? Every once in a while, I'll hear someone make an historical reference that is, well, wrong. For instance, I have several times in my life needed to sign a document, and the person asking me to sign will hand me a pen and say, put your John Henry right here. Now, this probably only happened twice to me, but it's happened more than once, and I'm always surprised by this. What they mean to say, I assume, is put your John Hancock right here. John Hancock, as I imagine we all know, was president of the Continental Congress, and he's famous, of course, for his huge signature he placed on the Declaration of Independence. His signature is so famous that his name has literally become synonymous with the word signature, hence the phrase, put your John Hancock right here, when wanting someone to sign their name. John Henry, on the other hand, was a legendary steel-driving man made famous in folk song. He's an African-American folk hero who's celebrated for taking on, in a race to dig a tunnel, a new steam engine drilling machine, and being so determined to win that he died of exhaustion in the attempt. As an aside, there is a debate whether John Henry is a fictitious character like Paul Bunyan or a legend based on reality like, say, Davy Crockett. John Henry's story seems to be specifically located, geographically speaking, which has led people to wonder if his story might be based in reality. But that's about as far as the research ever gets. There doesn't seem to be much evidence one way or the other. So whichever is true, the story and song were favorites from my childhood. It's probably clear the reason for the John Henry, John Hancock misquote is clearly not because their stories were similar, but just the closeness of their names. These kinds of misquotes are not just found in secular history, but there are quite a few associated with the Bible. So I thought it might be fun to start a sub-theme within this podcast exploring some of these biblical misconceptions— then set the record straight, and whenever possible, figure out where the confusion came from. So this is the first of the Is That in the Bible series. My expectation is this will become a reoccurring segment, so if you have suggestions for these podcasts, get in touch and share your ideas. The first one's not so much in the Bible, but about a particular translation of the Bible. I have often heard people talk about the St. James Version of the Bible— This one's kind of understandable. James was a disciple. James and his brother John were working with their father Zebedee on the shore when Jesus came by and called them, and they followed him in his ministry, and they were amongst the very first to join him. So there are several reasons to see James as special. As I said, he was amongst the first disciples to follow Jesus, so he's with him from the very beginning. His brother was John, who, by what we understand from one of the Gospels, John appears to have been Jesus' best friend. James was also part of the trio, Peter, James, and John, who Jesus took with him up the mountain when Jesus was transfigured in glowing white robes and suddenly joined by Moses and Elijah. So James is certainly special amongst the apostles. There's also the traditional belief that some of the other disciples wrote the gospel, so why wouldn't the Bible translation be attributed to one of the most prominent disciples? Now, the primary logical reasons that this translation could not have been created by St. James are timing and language. 
James, as an apostle of Jesus, lived in the first century, and the earliest form of Old English didn't come into existence until about 450 years later. Middle English, another 500 years after that. And then we have early modern English, which is dated back to about 1,500 years after the life of the disciples. And this early modern English is the language of the Bible in question. So St. James, as it turns out, was 1,600 years off from the time this Bible was created and couldn't have spoken the language in question. The Bible in question, I think at this point, obviously is not called the St. James Version of the Bible. It's called the King James Version of the Bible. In 1604, this new version of Scripture was commissioned to be translated into English from the original texts of Greek and Hebrew, and in 1611, it was finally finished. And interestingly, it was not originally called the King James Version. It was just titled, and I'll try to do the entire title on just one breath, The Holy Bible Containing the Old Testament and the New, Newly Translated Out of the Original Tongues, and with former translations diligently compared and reused by His Majesty's special commencement. Yeah, it's no wonder that title didn't catch on. It wasn't actually called the King James Bible until much later, and was most often referred to as either just the Bible within England or the English Bible when comparing it to translations in other languages or from other places. The King James Version, also called the Authorized Version, became the standard English Bible for generations within most Protestant denominations. It was, for its day, a scholarly attempt to make an accurate translation, and it is known and revered for its beautiful and poetic language. When I was first in the ordained ministry a little over 30 years ago, this Bible held a very special place in the hearts of many Protestants. I've even heard a few Protestant laypeople try to silence a religious debate by saying, well, that's what it says in the King James Bible, and if those words are good enough for Jesus, they're good enough for me. It is amazing how often we forget that we're reading a translation, not the original text. The King James Version, or KJV, as it's often referred to using its initials, has fallen out of favor in the last 15 to 20 years First, its language is no longer seen as accessible for many English readers. People no longer find Jesus speaking like a Shakespearean character to be beautiful, just confusing. Second, with the discovery of new ancient manuscripts since the original publication of the King James, it's no longer considered particularly accurate compared to some more modern translations, and I'll say more about that later. I should also say there's no single English translation of Scripture that's considered authoritative. I personally have many different English translations, and I use them all. It will be, no doubt, the topic for a future podcast to talk about why there are so many translations, what are the different types of translations that exist, and how different translations are useful in different ways. Now back to the King James. Allow me to give a comparison using a couple of verses from the 15th chapter of the book of Job and reading them first from the King James, and then the New International Version, or the NIV, as you may know it. Okay, we're reading from Job 15, 26 and 27. Here's the King James. He runneth upon him, even on his neck, upon the thick bosses of his bucklers, because he covered his face with his fatness, and maketh collops of fat on his flanks. Okay, now I'm going to read from the NIV, a much more modern translation. 
defiantly charging against him with a thick, strong shield, though his face is covered with fat and his waist bulges with flesh. Okay, I'll admit it's not an attractive image, but the point is that it at least is far clearer in the NIV, I hope you think so, than it was in the King James. When I was first ordained, I'd often have couples come to my office to talk about getting married, and it was not at all unusual for one of them in the midst of the conversation to say something like this, We want to have the King James Version of the Bible read at our wedding. It's what we like, it's what we want, and we won't be talked out of it. What I quickly learned was that of all the couples who said this to me down through the years, not one of them had any acquaintance with the King James Version. This opinion was always the opinion of a family member, a grandparent or a parent who told them to say this and then told them to be sure and stand their ground. Finally, when we got to picking scripture passages for their service, I'd just have them read their chosen passages from a couple of different translations. And interestingly, not one single couple ever wound up picking the King James Version. If you're someone who's interested in comparing scriptural passages from different translations, or perhaps you're interested in reading from the King James Version of the Bible, allow me to recommend a website. The site is BibleGateway.com. BibleGateway.com. I have no affiliation whatsoever with the site other than the fact that I am a frequent user. And you can look up a reference such as John 3.16 and pick the translation you'd like to read. It also allows you to look up a passage such as 1 Corinthians 13, 1-13. Or as often happens, you know you want to read the story of the Good Samaritan, but you aren't sure where it occurs in the Bible. And this website can help you out. You just enter the word Samaritan, and it will show you all the places the word appears in Scripture and the sentence in which each citation occurs. It allows you to quickly discern that Good Samaritan story occurs in the 10th chapter of Luke. So regardless of which these you are searching for, you just enter your search in the same place at the top of the page, and it couldn't be easier. There are over 60 English translations and also translations from an extremely wide assortment of other languages in case you, say, want to read your passage in Hawaiian, Dutch, Portuguese, or perhaps all three, whatever strikes your fancy. I'll put the link to the site in the show notes. It's not unusual for a clergy person preparing a sermon to look at several translations. As someone who has done this many times, it's amazing how often reading a new translation can help me see a familiar text from a fresh perspective. And if you do this, I encourage you not to get too wrapped up in a single translation being right while others are wrong, because that's really not the point. The point is not to find out which is correct, but to allow the Spirit to stir a new learning or growth within you, regardless of which translation you are reading. Also, comparing passages in different translations can help the reading of Scripture stay fun and interesting, which are not two words most people associate with reading the Bible. Okay, finally, I want to add a bit more historical context for the King James Version, which I think will make it even more interesting. King James came to the throne of England from Scotland and was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. His mother had lived a turbulent, intrigue-filled life, ruled Scotland, 
had aspirations probably on the British throne. She eventually fled from Scotland when things started to turn south from her. She ran to England, fearing for her life. And Elizabeth, the Queen of England at the time, saw Mary as both a rival, who had a legitimate claim on the English throne, and a schemer. So eventually Mary was accused of a plot to kill Elizabeth, and Mary was beheaded. Now imagine what it was like for James, son of Mary, Queen of Scots, to succeed Elizabeth to the throne. He was immediately questioned by some as to his right to claim the position. He also came to power in the midst of enormous political and particularly religious upheaval. At the time he came to the throne, the translation of the Bible used in the Church of England, of which the king is the head, used an English translation called the Bishop's Bible. And many of the Protestants and Puritans within his kingdom used a different Bible. They used something called the Geneva Bible, a translation that came out of Geneva and the Calvinist movement. And this translation not only contained the words of Scripture, but also had margin notes, which did things like question the divine right of kings. Very shortly after taking the throne, James convened the Hampton Court Conference It was an opportunity to meet with the leaders of the Church of England and also some of the leaders of the Puritan movement and hear their grievances against the Church of England and issues that they felt were wrong or sometimes were, as they called them, too Catholic. In the midst of these difficult and tense conversations, it was suggested that a new translation of the Bible should be commissioned, and it surprised many at the conference that James agreed immediately. Now, he gave a series of instructions to the translators. There would be no margin or editorial notes as a part of this Bible. They would not use wording to challenge the divine right of kings, and they would steer clear of words which diminish the hierarchical structure of the church, which he liked. So the word church would be used, and the word congregation would never be used. He brought together a large group of scholars— most of whom were from the Church of England, but some of the scholars were sympathetic with the Puritans. And as a quick aside into something that I think is fascinating, one challenge they had that doesn't exist in the same way today is that they had literally no experts in the type of Greek that was used in the New Testament. The Greek scholars in England, all of them to a person at that time, were acquainted with classical literary Greek. But the New Testament was written in Koine Greek or Common Greek, which was very different. And it was much, much later and well after the publication of the King James Version that a huge trove of Koine Greek documents were found, enabling scholars to become experts in that specific form of the language. So our translations today are far more accurate than was the King James Version. King James proclaimed that this new translation would be the only translation allowed to be used in churches in his kingdom, hence it's named the Authorized Version. His desire was to work on uniting the people of his empire. Surely some of their religious differences would fall away if they were at least reading from the same Bible translation. Interestingly, he succeeded in his goal, at least partially. The Bible became the standard for English-speaking people regardless of denomination, 
but it was so successful it facilitated the democratization of Scripture in the English-speaking world. This Bible enabled the common person to own their own Bible, to read it, and to interpret it for themselves. So he hoped for a Bible that would bring the people together under the king's authority, and in the end, he probably had the opposite effect long-term with this translation. One last detail. If you own a King James version of the Bible, unless it's a very old book, it's not the same as the original version we've been talking about. By the mid-18th century, there had come to be so many variations in printing of the King James version. There was a response to this, so there were a couple of edited versions produced in fairly quick succession, but it was the Oxford version of 1769 that ultimately became the ubiquitous standard So about 150 years after the original, the King James went through this update in 1769, and that's the version most people own today. I hope you found this first edition of Is That in the Bible? to be interesting. I want to invite you one more time to contribute ideas for this subset within the podcast. If you have examples of things people quote as being in the Bible but aren't, or perhaps things you've heard quoted but can't find them, I encourage you to send them to me to use in future installments of this podcast when we ask the question again, is that in the Bible? That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Please feel free to get in touch with me through email or Twitter. Just remember that both are SkyPilot with three T's, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. So my email address is skypilot at gmail.com and Twitter is at SkyPilot. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember... The sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.